0: We're going to explore this week why naturalistic materialism can't get us to a robust moral ethic, and if none of that made sense to you, this is, after all, in layman's terms, we'll explain everything. This is Matthew Garnett. Welcome to In Layman's Terms.
1: The vast majority of people can't read their own language, let alone Latin. So what the Protestants said, the important thing is for the individual to get a direct relationship with God, and the only way for an individual to do that is to know God's Word, and that means we need to start teaching people to read and to get the Bible translated into all of the
0: vernacular languages. One of my favorite contemporary philosophers is... Dr. Stephen Hicks, uh, I would highly recommend his book, Explaining Postmodernism, that he nails it and talk about really uh, something that's very accessible to a layman. That book really is accessible to a layman. He really lays out what postmodernism is doing in no uncertain terms. It's not this, just trying to nail jello to the wall type of idea. That's really not anything of what's going on. We've discussed that before. So I, I really appreciate Hicks's work with postmodernism, however, his answer to postmodernism is objectivism, which is basically Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, that uh, that realm of, of philosophy, and we're gonna we're gonna do a bit of a critique on, on that, especially when it comes to morality. That can we find our uh, can we find a robust moral system through objectivism? And I'm I'm going to contend that no, you absolutely cannot. And we've talked about this before. And we're going to explore those reasons why. We're also going to, uh, in, a, in a lecture that um, that uh, Dr. Hicks gave at Lafayette College, uh, explore you know his really understanding of how the Enlightenment came about. Because I've got my theory on it. Everybody's got their theory on it. I think it. Uh, a, a great deal of it has to do with the Reformation and the fact that the, that the church's uh, fear and power structure was broken by Luther and the Reformers, that, that once Luther kind of got away with what he did during the Reformation, that this kind of opened the floodgates for people to start questioning everything. And sometimes questioning everything is a good thing. Sometimes questioning everything can can lead to very dark places that doesn't mean that we that we shouldn't question that that just means that you know what was uh, formally enforced by the sword of the church this is why luther was very clear when he talked about the two kingdoms that the church should not bear the sword and that the government should not preach that was really essentially his his two kingdoms idea uh, you know that that the that the church had come to a place where it was bearing the sword in order to uh maintain power which is not not anything of what holy scripture teaches about what the church should be doing which is what Luther pointed out and this opened the the way for the renaissance and the enlightenment and and all those sorts of things and we're going to talk about all that but before we get to it let me let me thank all of you who are listening to us on KNN the Cross in Nebraska also uh thank you to Steve Kozar and his work at the messedupchurch.com. You can get our podcast for free there if you go to messedupchurch.com, the messedupchurch.com. There's tons of resources there for you that you know this is what we do. We we critique the American Church. It's uh, you know, there there are plenty there's plenty of critique to go around, but we but we critique it uh, from the perspective of, of of people who are a part of the American Church. And we're we're more than willing to to critique critique ourselves and you're going to find plenty of resources there that do that as long as a uh, as far, uh, as well as links um, to my podcast for free. And so thank you to Steve and his work at the messedupchurch.com please check it out. If uh you, what we would also like you to do, in addition to checking out the themestupchurch.com, is go to laymanstermsradio.org. And when you go there, you'll see that we've got an option for you to donate 5 $10, or $15 per podcast or a one-time $50 donation to our Kenya Well Project for a Lutheran school in Kenya, Africa. Uh, these children are, as part of their school curriculum, as you've maybe heard me say many times— have to go to rivers and streams to get buckets of water so they can get through a school day. That is not good. We want to fix that. We want to drill them a well so they have access to fresh water, so they can have plumbing in their building. So this is not a burden on their school day. I mean, this this will just completely transform the way these kids learn, the way these children are able to grasp the information that, that's being taught to them without being fatigued or worried about you know where am I going to go to the bathroom? How am I going to get water? And these sorts of things. They could have plumbing in the building, and it would just be uh, it would just be a miracle to them to have a, a water, a, a fresh water well there on site where they could put in plumbing to their building. And we've got to raise thirty thousand dollars to do that. That's just that's just how it is. And thirty thousand dollars is nothing. And I know that because I've got enough of you listeners out there that if you just committed yourself to donating. $5 per podcast for one month's time. If all of you did this, the, then we could very easily fund this. If all of you did it, we would have more money. I'd have to start giving back money. <laughs> that's, that's how it is. It wouldn't take even all of you. It would just take some of you. And I do want to thank those of you who, who have given. We, we are approaching the $4,000 mark on raising this. And we've been at this a while, and we're going to keep going at it. That's you know, I've talked to the folks at the at the Kibo's board. They just they just want to they want us to, to keep after it and, and see if we can uh, kind of break the break the floodgates open here. And so that's what we're hoping for. So please donate five, ten, or fifteen dollars per podcast or a one time fifty dollar donation through our GoFundMe. We really appreciate it, and I know the children at Kibo's Hope Academy will uh, greatly benefit benefit from what we're doing here for years to come. We're gonna, I mean. It, it, if we do this, it'll be just completely transformative for those kids there. So please give to the Kenya Well Project. Okay, so I'm not again like last week. I'm not going to gild the lily here because I want to get to uh, Dr. Hicks' comments on uh, on philosophy. Again, largely he he is he's my guy philosophy wise. You know, as far as as contemporary philosophers go, I think he has postmodernism squared away. I think he has it exactly right. And that's not that's not just because he was feeding it to me, but, but because this is precisely what I lived when I was out at Claremont. This is uh, he has it spot on and knows exactly what's happening. And so as far as that goes, as we've said in, in past podcasts, uh, if you want to understand postmodernism, uh, Stephen Hicks is is your guy and he's my guy. That's uh, uh, you know I just don't uh, I don't really subscribe to anyone who's who's going to deny that that postmodernism really has a meta narrative and a telos and all this other stuff that they deny that they have. It's just just it's just not reality. Anyway, we've talked about that before, but I I want to critique Dr. Hicks a little bit here in this episode and talk about how um, the Judeo-Christian tradition and namely the Reformation. Uh, we're we're, we're large, largely responsible for, for the coming about uh, of the Enlightenment, and, and that's what we're going to critique, along with the failings, I, I think the shortcomings, that objectivism offers when it comes to a, a moral code. So let's get to it.
1: There is a line that goes from Aristotle, to Locke, to Nietzsche, to Rand. That is the most promising line here. And all of them are kind of biological functionalist fundamentally in their, their meta-ethics. So if you think...
0: Uh, uh... Let's hold it there for a second and explain a couple things. Biological functionalists in their meta-ethics. Big, big fancy word for we can observe nature, we can look at things and we can come up with a grand scheme of how we should behave as human beings by looking at the by observing the world and then taking that data turning it around we can we can learn what's right and wrong and there's some truth to that now and I, and, I, and I'm going to give Dr. Hicks his due on this and, and those of uh, that stripe that would be it. your Sam Harris Type folks that we can establish objective morality without revelation, which means revelation from God, Allah, a- the Bible. Also, note he draws the line from Aristotle to Locke to Nietzsche to Rand, saying that that's the most promising if we tra- track that trajectory of philosophical thought. And we pull it all together. That's that's the most promising line we can draw from, uh, to in order to to establish uh, the, this this ethical moral system. Well, hmm. So while he might criticize, well, well he's going to criticize uh, morals being handed down from on high. As we'll we'll see from God in Revelation we're still having morals handed down from on high, in a sense, from Aristotle, Locke, Nietzsche, and Rand. See? And so, if I happen to disagree with Ayn Rand on a particular uh, particular moral uh, question, then I am going to be deemed to be unreasonable or irrational. If I disagree with Nietzsche or Locke, or Aristotle on a particular on a particular particular ethical question I'm going to be drawn into the realm of irrational because I because I disagree with him I'm going to show you what I mean here let let, let me let uh, Dr. Hicks continue and, I, and I'll show you precisely what I mean
1: I don't want to turn this into a whole meta ethics lecture but where do we get our moral standards from and then there are, are you know, four main theories one is god or the gods just to lay them on us It's a divine command theory uh, uh or they are just based on pleasure pain that's built into us <laughs> biologically or we uh, we make them up socially kind of a social subjectivism or if we don't think any of those are adequate we're kind of nihilistic so the theory i think that works best is a uh, technical biological functionalism so the way to think about it I think is before we get to the really hu- complicated human cases is to think of a simpler biological case so if you think of um, like a fish for example and you're just a biologist and you're studying fish uh, and you're being purely scientific and you start studying fish and you say well the fish is in water And um, the fish has certain needs, certain nutritional needs. Um, But it has these gills and these fins that enable it to be mobile in the water. So it has certain capacities. So it has these needs, say for nutrition, and it has certain capacities that enable it to, when those capacities are exercised, then get prey to satisfy its needs. Now, does it then make sense, and this is the move, this is the meta-ethical move, to say um, what's good for the fish is swimming. That if you took a fish and threw it on the land and it's trying to flop around, that that's bad for the fish.
0: All right, so let me unpack that. And I could be wrong about this. Maybe I'm making a caricature of Hicks's argument here. However, when he says, here's the move. Here's the meta-ethical move. He's making a step of faith to call the fish in the water good and the fish out of the water bad. <clears throat> okay? That's... At the end of the day, he, he can't ontologically ground that. In other words, <clears throat> it's, it's arbitrary. It's, it's completely at his whim to say, well... Because this is where the fish does this and that and the other thing as a biologist studies it and if we take it out of that environment and it can't do this and that and the other thing that's bad or that's bad and this is good or that's good and this is bad is arbitrary. It's complete, it, That's completely arbitrary. You're making a step of faith. Now, here's where, here's where I'll go that most Christian apologists won't go is all I will grant that. I will grant that fish out of water by by all observable uh scientific indicators fish in water good fish out of water bad I don't need the bible to tell me that I don't need divine revelation to teach me that we can we can observe that and I think that our instincts allow us to take that step of faith to say The fish is suffering, that's bad the fish in the water is not suffering, that's good Okay, I, I, I can grant that However, let me throw this little scenario in Fish in the water, not suffering, doing its thing Call it good Fish out of the water, flopping around Not good not good for the fish. However, I'm the fisherman. I just went fishing down in the Gulf of Mexico. It was beautiful. We caught black tip shark. Uh, and by the way, just incidentally, if you have the opportunity to go down the Gulf of Mexico, get a guide that will take you to catch black fi- black, uh, black tip shark. Because they they are so tasty. <laughs> They're so, so good. Anyway, we caught shark and it was great. Uh, so the, the, the shark in the water, for him, good. Out, in, uh, out of the water, in our boat, getting ready to be put on, on the ice to be eaten later, bad for him. But good for me, because he's very, very tasty. See, now, now we've added another element. So his very simple illustration of, well, we look at this biologically... We can very clearly see that the fish in the water is good. The fish out of the water is bad. But you bring in another element to it, like the fisherman, fish in the water, eh, bad basically. Fish out of the water in my cooler, getting ready to be eaten, good. See what I'm saying? You <laughs> so already his fish analogy gets really, really complicated. I'm, I want, I want to, I bring that out, all that out to say this: the three. Main, and, I, and I've talked about this before, but I want to really illustrate this because, I, because Hicks is so beautifully bringing out my critiques of coming up with ethics and morals through pure objectivism, through, through pure, well, I wouldn't say pure reason, but through reason alone, without any revelation, without God dictating the terms. See, first of all is authority. Now he's already talked about that. He's already he's already established Aristotle, Locke, uh, Nietzsche, and Ayn Rand as the authorities. Those the authorities. Let's see, and the question becomes, and this is why postmodernism arose, because people came along and said, "Well, what gives you the authority to say that the fish in the water is good and the fish out of the water is bad?" Because I can give you another illustration where the fish out of the water is good and the fish in the water is bad. How can you possibly, in an objective sense, say that? All right. So so there's that question of authority. Right. So if we try to negotiate morality between human beings, that the authority piece is really going to get in the way. Because right now, Hicks is calling upon authorities. He's appealing to authorities. He, he's making that... He's making that, um, that logical error. Appealing to Aristotle... Locke, Nietzsche, and Rand. That's his authorities. We follow their lead on this. And we do what they say is logical. And Ayn Rand, in particular... Well, Nietzsche as well. Locke, not so much. Aristotle, definitely not so much. Um but but rand and nietzsche say we don't need divine revelation in fact that's going to be counterproductive so if you appeal to divine revelation for an authority that's that's out as far as being quote rational goes the only problem is is if there is a divine authority if god exists it would be severely irrational to ignore that fact okay and we'll get to that as well so the, the, the point being that even his simple illustration right here has many complications, right? First of all, there's the authority piece. Second of all, there's the time it takes. He ta- He's talking about a simple you know illustration with fish. And he says, oh, forget about the human element right there. That's very complicated and it's going to take a bunch of time. Right? It's going to take a lot of time to figure, we got to sort through these things. Well, that's a major problem because what especially what we saw in the 20th century was people trying to sort out what is ethical and moral and what isn't. Because really, before World War II, everybody thought eugenics might be a pretty good idea. And then once the Nazis said we're we're gonna go ahead and go with this eugenics thing, and we saw The horrifying torture and killing of six million Jews. We thought "Eh, maybe this eugenics thing isn't such a great idea. See, so you have to experiment with these things. You have to say, Oh, eugenics sounds like a pretty good idea. Let's give it a shot, see how it goes. Uh, And then we see what we saw in World War II, and we say, "Mm, Not such a good idea, right? Same thing can be said for communist Russia. China, Pol Pot, and the list goes on. Got to experiment with these things beforehand? I don't think that's a good idea. I I would rather have divine revelation from a creator who says, who just tells us straight away, hey, if you think this is a good idea, let me just tell you it's not. Just go ahead and avoid that for now, whether you understand it or not. Don't go to the School of Hard Knocks. That's exactly what Hicks is suggesting here. Now, I've been to the School of Hard Knocks. I have a PhD from the School of Hard Knocks. And let me tell you, going to the School of Hard Knocks on everything moral and ethical is a bad idea, especially for the whole of humanity. So learning these things through our own experiences and observations is a bad way to go because it takes too much time. It takes too much experimentation. Then on top of that, once we learn certain things like killing six million Jews is probably not a good idea. Then what happens is the scope of our morality is limited. It's limited. Because when we use... When, when reason trumps revelation, then things like... Um, Six-year-old boys who think they're girls starting to take hormone blockers becomes a good idea. Let's see. We start to experiment with it, and then the and then the and the scope of the of our morality is limited. We we start to think that, that men sodomizing each other is a loving thing. Let's see? So authority, time, and scope. I've talked about this before. But I thought, boy, Dr. Hicks really brought this out here with his fish analogy. Thought it'd be a great way to just review this stuff. Never hurts to review it. I'm always looking to review it and see ways to reinforce it, but we reinforce it, but we see it right here. Uh, I'm gonna let him go on a bit a bit more about this and see if he's got anything else to, to add here. But I think I think we pretty much covered the the fish analogy. <laughs> we can't observe our way into a moral system. In some senses, we can, but it's going to it's going to lack authority. It's going to take time, and it's going to lack scope. No, no question. I mean, the holy scripture is clear that even somebody who does not believe can come to some sort of morality, and thank God they can, because <laughs> if they couldn't, we would we would really be in trouble. See, uh, but again, the. the their morality is going to be severely lacking and in need of a divine revelation. All right, let's go on.
1: Now what we're saying is bad for the fish because the fish has certain needs, but being on land, it cannot exercise its capacities in order to fulfill those needs. And we're speaking purely objectively here in terms of biological facts, but we're making a normative move fish on land bad fish in water able to swim and the exercise of the swimming is good that's good proper healthy for the fish to do so what we then are saying when we're making uh, value claims is there's a fit between an organism's needs its capacities and the exercise of those capacities in an environment to extract what it needs to satisfy its claims. So, that's the main move and if you grant that move, then we just start saying, well, when we do morals, um, what we're looking for is to say, well, what are genuine needs of organisms? Now, human beings are more complicated, so we're going to have a much bigger list of needs. We have all of our biological needs, but we're also psychological creatures, so we're going to have psychological needs. And then if we're going to satisfy those needs, what capacities do we need to exercise? And having physical structures and psychological structures that enable us to exercise those capacities, those will be good capacities to have. We'll start using uh, language like healthy in a normative sense, where we say damaging certain structures is unhealthy because that means certain capacities can't be exercised, which means certain needs can't be satisfied. Having certain resources out in the environment is good because if we act to get those resources, that satisfies our needs and so on. So. Then we might be able to say something like, and this would be a more sophisticated case, is why do we say that farming is good? And that's a normative claim. Well, because we say humans have nutritional needs, but the distinctively human capacity for doing that is by thinking about things and discovering how to cultivate crops. So all of the discoveries and knowledge that early farmers made, all of that knowledge is good, because it enables us to engage in certain actions in the environment to get resources that, when we consume them, satisfy our needs, and that's why farming is good, and everything so is
0: why it was passed on,
1: and why it was passed on as a result. Yeah. So something would be a strategy like that, and then now food is already more complicated for humans than it is for animals, but then we start scaling up, and then the hardest ones are are going to be, I think, art. Uh, you know what. What psychological needs is art fulfilling and policy?
0: Right, so you just see the same thing over and again here is hey farm, farming is good. What about factory farming? Is that good? about the kind of farming we do yeah so you know, so, um, you know there, the, this stuff gets gets really complicated and again, it's it's authority, time and, and scope. Because there, there are people. This, this is what the postmoderns are going. The postmoderns are going to do. They're going to come against Hicks and say, "How can you possibly say that farming is good? Farming is the gravest evil that has ever come upon humanity." Because look at this and that and the other. They're start naming all these things about how horrible farming is, just so us human beings can, right? So people for the ethical treatment of animals. You know, they're going to come. In, um, <laughs> see see that that's the problem. And so now you've got these two sides. This is this has been the history of humanity really since the reformation. Is you've got this one side that says we can figure out everything through reason and and empirical study and you've got somebody else coming along saying no, you really can't. Figure out everything through reason and empirical study. And therefore, we should throw all of that out in favor of complete relativism. And so, what's the answer to it? Can we get out of this quagmire? And I would suggest that divine revelation is the way out of the quagmire. Right? So, and that's something that just that Hicks just glosses over. Oh, divine divine revelation. That yeah, that can't that can't work. Well, um, he he glosses over it because he equates divine revelation to you know pre Aquinas uh, church domination. Well, and even church domination up until the time of Luther, and that's that's really what we're going to get into next. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that out. Just really wanted to clearly illustrate how objectivism is not the answer. Postmodernism is not the answer either, (laughs) no question about it. But Hicks is leaving himself wide open to postmodern critique here, and that—that's the problem with objectivism. That's—I mean, Ayn Rand, in my opinion, in many many ways, is so useless as a philosopher. And I'm just uh I'm I'm that's the one place I'm disappointed with Hicks in is that he goes to he goes to Rand. Goes to Ayn Rand. Goes from from Aristotle to Locke. Not bad. To Nietzsche eh, Uh to Ayn Rand. Um sorry, Ayn Rand is not on the level of any of those other philosophers, not even close. Um, and his illustration of the fish and the agriculture, you see, you see how uh, this is just wrought with problems that can't readily be solved and that are wide open to postmodern critique. It's just that's that has been the debate and will continue to be the debate until until a few of us come along and say, hey, we need divine revelation for the reasons that there's got to be authority there's got to be time. We've got to have these answers timely in a timely way, and there's got to be the scope, the depth of morality. We can't just guess about these things. We can't experiment infinitely, in, infinitely uh, with morality. We can't. We can't sit here and say, "Well, yeah, you know, we think it might be a good, I- good idea to kill babies before they're born." Let's see how that goes for a few, you know, decades which I hope will at some point come to the realization. Maybe, you know, these objectivists will take us there at some point. But we know from divine revelation, that's the thing. I, and, I, and I always like to bring up that, um, that interview that Joe Rogan did with, uh, with uh, Brett, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, his wife, where they talked about how, hey, you know, lo and behold... The biblical standards for sexuality are actually the most fulfilling sexual standards that there are. Wow. We knew this, you know, two millennia ago, three millennia ago, four millennia ago. When the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We, we've known this for a long time. Why do we have to wait on all of you to experiment with everything and then say oh you know what at the end of the day it's the best way to have the most fulfilling sexual relationship is is within a monogamous man woman relationship that produces children (sighs) we have to wait for science to come around to this hopefully science will come around to realize that killing babies before they're born is is immoral at, at some point too hopefully we're getting there anyway you see my point uh, let's move on to uh, a couple other things here that I found interesting. The big divide, though, uh, is between those who want to give
1: uh, equal credit to the Judeo-Christian tradition and to the Greco-Roman tradition. And what we find, uh, I think, in people who are more culturally conservative and politically conservative is that, that they will say, yes, we have uh, uh, the Greco-Roman tradition that's absolutely important to us. You know, it's it's not accidental that Plato and Aristotle and Seneca uh, Seneca and Cicero are cited and that all of our political architecture is Greco-Roman and that we we do our theater a certain way and we all know what the Hippocratic Oath is and we know who Euclid and Archimedes are. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, But they will also say equally important is the judeo Christian tradition, that there are strongly positive contributions that come out of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And what makes uh, uh, modern Western civilization uh, unique is that it is this hybrid of those two very deep traditions. And I don't agree with that position, but I don't think that's a stupid position. I think that could be a very sophisticated position with a lot of uh, of good arguments that can be can be made for it. The other position uh, gives, uh, says that yes, uh, the judeo christian tradition obviously has been important. The Greco-Roman tradition has been important, but if we're trying to explain the positive achievements of the Enlightenment, the Greco-Roman tradition is more important. And that's the view that I take. Uh, Now the kind of evidence that I make here is that, if you look at Europe, the Christians basically had Europe all to themselves for about a thousand years. And what did they do with it? Well, they start to then say, uh, this is actually an article I'm working on writing right now, Uh, to say well you have to talk about scholasticism and the development of universities and this and that and the other invention and so on. I think all of that is true but if you start putting dates to all of those things that's 1300s, that's 1400s. Uh, And all of that is after the Greek and Roman texts are rediscovered and being reintroduced into into Europe. So uh, what I think is that that's a lot of now people who are strong fans of the Judeo-Christian tradition making their peace with the modern world but wanting to get some of the credit for it themselves. So my view is that uh, it's not to say that uh, everything in Judaism and Christianity is wrong, but as a matter of historical development that they have been uh, 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 more of an obstacle than an assist in, in the development. So what had to happen was a brilliant mind like Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s was exposed to the writings of Aristotle that had been recently rediscovered and his teacher, Albert Albert the Great. And with his intellectual integrity and his intellectual honesty is with saying, I think the Judeo-Christian tradition is absolutely right, but I also am very impressed with what the Greeks and Romans did and what this Aristotle guy has come up with. And so let's try for a synthesis.
0: Except that's not at all what Aquinas did when he discovered Aristotle's works. What he discovered was that Aristotle had an extraordinary grasp on common grace and general revelation. That's what he discovered. Aristotle fits in with what Holy Scripture teaches about God almost to a T. Almost to a T. You're talking about monotheism. Monotheism was invented by the Jews, not invented by the Jews. It was revealed to them. It was revealed to the Jews. Okay, if you, if you wanted to put it in a scholarly, theory, it would it was invented by the Jews, if you wanted to put it in Hicks terms. And and the reason monotheism is important is because when you look at when you look at Aristotle and his understanding of cosmology and the unmoved mover you, if if you're going to divine define something as god that god had to be omniscient, omnipresent and <coughs> and omnipotent that was the definition of god in holy scripture several uh centuries before aristotle and what Aquinas discovered was that what Aristotle knew through common grace and general, uh, general revelation comported completely with Holy Scripture. And that's, that's why it was integrated. It, was, it wasn't this, well, you know, Aquinas was saying, well, let's, let's try to integrate Aristotle with uh, the Christian tradition. I don't think that's what happened at all. What Aquinas discovered what uh, understood was that Aristotle under Aristotle it was, it was a brilliant, brilliant man who through general revelation understood that there could only be one unmoved mover. That's how things had to be, just philosophically. And it completely supports what holy scripture teaches. And that's why Aquinas Jumped on this. It wasn't because he was trying to synthesize anything. That that couldn't have. I just. I'm. Again, I could be wrong. Hicks could be completely right. That Aquinas was like, well, we've got this stuff, and we're trying to let us synthesize it and bring it up. No, I don't think so. I think that you. I think the Judeo-Christian tradition had this stuff, and then they found secular philosophers who had had discovered this through general revelation, which bolstered their argument. That's what I think was going on here. And so, the again, the question has to be asked, why did the Enlightenment take root in the place that it did? Why, why didn't the Enlightenment happen in China? It's a good question to ask. Could it have been because us Christians, the Jews had this all along and we just finally have kind of come to discover this. Could it have been that the church became corrupt after the Roman Empire fell and they were looking for power and they kind of lost track of the, of the central message? Could it have been that they've lost track of, of what Holy Scripture teaches us, teaches us that every individual is created in the image of God and Hicks is going going to go on to talk about this with, in, in a way that I think is com- completely wrong could it could it have been that history finally caught up with what judeo-christianity has been teaching for time immemoria that's what that's what I think the enlightenment is is that history finally caught up with that and then, lo and behold, men like Hicks come along and say, "Oh, well, no, this isn't us catching up with Judeo-Christianity. Judeo-Christianity is this, you know, archaic. You know, look, look at what the Christians did, with just like Hicks says here. Look, look what the Christians did with the time they had power, and what what got accomplished. Well, what was going on with the Christians there?" They'd abandoned reason, right? In many ways, they they completely abandoned reason, and they turned to authoritarianism in order to establish and maintain their power. And so, once that was broken by Luther and the Reformation, then people start to turn to reason. And eventually, what happens is that, just like Hicks here, people abandon religion in in favor of reason. The problem is, when you do that, then that's when you open yourself to all of these postmodern ideas. See, religion and reason have to go together. You can't have just religious authoritarianism without reason. You cannot have a top-down system where somebody at the top says, this is what the Bible says and we're going to tell the rest of you people what it says in a language you can't understand and you're just going to have to accept it. And you completely bar the individual from using his reason. See, that's the that's legitimate critique That Hicks has about the church. From the time it was made legal. In the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire fell. The church from. You know say. 5th century. On to the 11th century or so. Languished in darkness. As did all of Europe. It was complete chaos. Let's remember. And people were just trying to grab power. Wherever they could. Things started to settle down and Aquinas got his shot. Aquinas got his shot and he showed how Aristotle made reasonable the Christian faith. And how the Christian faith was there even before Aristotle conceived of it. That's really what Aquinas was trying to show. So anyway, bottom line is reason without religion... Not good. Religion without reason? Not good. You need both. You need both. And Luther talked about this. This is this was his testimony at his trial. Unless you can show me by scripture and plain reason that I am wrong, here I stand. I can do no other. That was his testimony. Scripture and plain reason. That's what this world needs. God's voice understood with plain reason, right? When you abandon either one of those, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble. All right, let's continue on.
1: that's a unique individual that comes along, but it is also important to note that Aquinas was almost excommunicated for trying to do that. And it took a lot of student activism right, uh, for uh, students who say, no, more Aristotle, more Aristotle in the curriculum. Imagine that. right? <laughs> uh, for the authorities to relent. And so the cat was out of the bag. So I see uh, the Judeo-Christian as fighting of a rear guard uh, and then coming to accommodations with uh, increasing inroads of humanism. Full-blown Renaissance uh, and so forth. Uh, I do give the Reformation some credit, but I see it as unintended consequences. The early reformers—they were—they you know, hate Aristotle. Right? I mean, you read what Martin Luther has to say about Aristotle. Like, my goodness, hate speech. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
0: <laughs> right. So that's the young Luther um, who is kind of just rejecting out of hand everything. What's Fifteen seventeen happens. You know he's really, you know, really resistant to Aristotle and the Scholastics. Um, that's that's early Luther. Um, later Luther, more, uh, becomes uh, warm to Aristotle. Yeah, I mean Luther is is a man of extremes. He he's going to say what he thinks at the time he thinks it, and if if at the time, you know, in in the early Reformation thinks about uh you know roman catholic scholasticism which is largely based on aristotelian thought not based on I i wouldn't say no that's the complete wrong way to say it not based on aristotelian thought is is um the holy scriptures is, is exposited in a way with aristotelian thought that makes sense to people right so, so, yeah, he's going to curse all that at first. But he's going to come back around to embrace it. The whole book of Concord is largely Aristotelian. Natural law theory. Proofs of God, etc., etc., based largely on what, it, uh, on what Aristotle talked about with the Unmoved Mover and what Aquinas expounded upon when it compared to Holy Scripture, for whatever reason, Aristotle was able to talk about God in a way that comports with Holy Scripture, and that's called—I mean—he had maybe an extra measure of uh, of common grace, as the Calvinists would put it, right? So, so to make that blanket statement that th- that the early reformers hated Aristotle is just patently false. That's not true. Plus, that the next generation of reformers. In the next century chemnitz um gerhart at all they were scholastics they were lutheran scholastics they were trying to go back to aristotle if anything uh if 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 aristotle had been lost at all they were trying trying to go back to that so yeah maybe the maybe the intent was uh, was uh they the, the, there was uh, unintended consequences But Luther stood up to the papacy. That was the big thing. He stood up to the papacy and said, you know what, I don't think this is what Holy Scripture teaches. And for the first time in human history, somebody stood up to the papacy and somebody backed him up. And that's what opened the floodgates for people to start saying, hey, you know what? We're just going to start exploring all of this. And that was good. That was very good. It broke the back of the authoritarianism which you, which had completely abandoned reason, as, a, as, a, as an epistemological tool, abandoned reason um, in favor of just putting all authority in the hands of a single man they called the Pope. And that was good. And it opened the floodgates, which led to the Enlightenment. Whether it was intended or unintended is, in my opinion, completely irre- irrelevant. Irrelevant. Hicks is downplaying that because he doesn't want to give any credit to Christians. He, re- I mean, he's, he, I mean, I think he's attempting to be fair, but, but he's an atheist. He, he's a Randian. Let's see, and and he's going to put all of his eggs in that basket anyway. Let's get a little bit more in here, and then we'll quit for this week.
1: <laughs> uh, uh, but he had a very rich vocabulary, right? Shall, right, shall we say, and the same thing for uh, for for Calvin for Zwingli, right, and all of the others. And what they're very much interested in is going back to a purified.
0: Uh, Zwingli and Calvin, incidentally, were some of the most rational theologians of the time. Now, whether you know, whether they rejected Aristotle or whatever, uh, Zwingli in particular, because he he was the one who initiated. Uh, sacramentarianism, which said, you know, bread cannot be body, wine cannot be blood. That's that is Enlightenment rational thinking. This is proto Enlightenment thinking. So for him to, I mean, it's I'm glad he knows who Zwingli is. But Zwingli was was an Enlightenment figure, if there ever was one, uh, in the Reformation.
1: i fundamentalist form of uh, of Christianity. From their perspective, now in the 1500s, uh, the church has sold out to Aristotelianism and started to become more worldly.
0: And uh, that- No, wrong. No, the church is not sold out to Aristotelianism. Ugh. The church is sold out to authoritarianism that is, has that is completely divorced itself from the authority of God's voice. That's what it's sold out to. It's corrupt. It's not sold out to... Look at Aquinas's influence on the church hasn't ha, wasn't felt until really modern times. In, in a lot of ways, Aquinas, a genius. I'm you know I'm virtually a Thomist in many many ways, but but his uh, his Summa wasn't wasn't even relevant. Until after the Council of Trent, in so many ways, that wasn't that wasn't even at hand. What the reformers were rejecting was not um, Aristotelianism; they were rejecting the uh, the authoritarianism of the papacy, and were trying to get the gospel in the hands of the common person. See that. Yeah, that that is just a complete mischaracterization of what the reformers were trying to do. They weren't they weren't rejecting the worldliness of Aristotelianism. That is not what they were doing. They were rejecting the the authoritarianism of the papacy. All right, let's see if we can get a bit more in here. It's
1: a corruption of Christianity, and we have to get back to uh, to uh, to true Christianity. But to their credit, right, what the Protestants did say is we think the catholic church is corrupt in this theological way that the important thing is for each individual to have a direct relationship with god and not to have to go through this institution, right? That God talks to God, who talks to the cardinals, and so on. uh, And or it's captured in scripture, but scripture is only available in Latin, and the vast majority of people can't read their own language, let alone Latin. So what the Protestants said, the important thing is for the individual to get a direct relationship with God, and the only way for an individual to do that is to know God's word, and that means we need to start teaching people to read and to get the Bible translated into all of the vernacular languages. Uh, Now their purpose was not to cause the enlightenment, but once you start teaching people to read and you start giving them books in their native language, then people start to read the Bible, and they start to try to interpret it, and you and I in our Bible studies have different interpretations, and so we start to have arguments about it, and I get better at argument, you get better at argument, and so we start to get more more rational. And once people start to get rational and think that uh, evidence and, uh, and argumentation uh, becomes important, that starts to fit into a certain kind of epistemology that's developing in the early modern world. So the cat's out of the bag, and the Protestants did to some extent let the cat out of the bag. Now fortunately, uh, what we then have is the Protestants are making that contribution. The Catholics uh, did make their accommodations with...
0: Okay, so Hickster deems himself a little bit here. <laughs> right, so that's that's precisely right. That L- Luther was was, was like God's voice is, is clear, it's authoritative let's put it in the hands of the common person and not just have this one man tell us what it says and that this led to all kinds of debate which I think is good because in a lot of ways it reveals the frauds it reveals those who yeah so we can debate about these things we can discuss it. And that's that's good. That that is a very, very good aspect. You know, the the, the Romanists lament the Protestant Reformation because it, it, it fragmented Christianity. Good. Christianity needed to be fragmented. Because we need to talk about what Saint Paul meant when he said this. We need to debate what Moses said when he what moses meant when he said this this is a good thing to have it dictated to us on high by church tradition about what this particular passage this and that and the other thing means and then on top of that to, to add you know kind of whatever you want on top of that that's not good that, that that completely takes any agency away from the authors not the people the authors this, this, that's why I love being Lutheran because we fight about this tooth and nail Lutherans fight and if you don't want to fight about what Holy Scripture means don't be a Lutheran because this is what we fight about we argue tooth and nail about what the authors of the Bible meant and I think that is the antidote against postmodernism is to say that we want to know what the authors meant because postmodernists will tell you you can't know what the what the author meant. The only thing that matters is what it means to you. You can never know what the author meant. The only thing that matters is what it means to you. That's the essence of postmodernism. And that's what I think Hicks is is missing here. And so, but I do appreciate him giving the credit where the credit is due that the, that the reformers were trying to seek out the individual so um when when hicks gives any kind of christian sect any amount of credit you can multiply that about by about a hundred and that's probably where it should lie okay uh, maybe a bit more here and then we gotta quit.
1: Aristotelianism and to this day they say faith and reason are equally important revelation is important but also Aristotle is very important so both of them are indirectly contributing so I do think uh, we can say positively that the Judeo-Christian tradition did add some things as well but by a large margin the most important traditions are coming from the Greeks and the Romans as they are reintroduced in in uh, humanism and the Renaissance.
0: No, again, it was it was the Greeks in concert with what Holy Scripture teaches. Again, Aristotle, um, you know, m- maybe by divine providence, had this, but it, it was it was in concert. That's that's where it wasn't it wasn't. Aristotle wasn't overlaid on Christianity and made it fit. What Holy Scripture teaches largely aligns with, in, in many ways, about what Aristotle taught about ethics, teleology, and God. It aligns. And so it harmonizes. And that was the brilliance of Aquinas. He saw That Aristotle had been given um, a common, uh, a general revelation through common grace about who God was and about what he wanted. And it harmonizes with Scripture. See? That's the idea. Anyway, interesting stuff here. Um,. Glad that uh, Doctor Hicks mentions Luther and the Reformers and that sort of thing. Um, he sees them as contributors to to the Enlightenment, uh, but but largely, you know, says, well, it's it's mostly the Greco-Roman tradition that that contributed to the Enlightenment. Well, the Greco-Roman tradition is largely in line with what Holy Scripture teaches, and that's what Aquinas pointed out, and. That's what led to uh, the Reformation. Talk about individuals, these sorts of things. Anyway, got to quit for this week. Thank you to all of you listening to us on KNA The Cross of Nebraska. Thank you to Steve Kozar and the MessedUpChurch.com. Please contribute to the Kenny Well Project. We'll see you next week. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. It